genre. Welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie The Two Towers, one minute at a time. I'm Norman Mitchell. And I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And today we'll be talking about Minute 7, which starts with the elven rope from last minute falling to the ground and ends with Frodo starting to collapse after he sees the Eye of Sauron in the distance. Lots of stuff falling to the ground dramatically. (laughs) (laughs) comically and then dramatically although it's a little comically i like the the comedy beat of frodo repeating the line real elvish rope yeah me too that always makes me chuckle i think it's a good like way to button the scene and then move on uh this minute we get the like actual start of the movie uh as far as the theatrical goes yeah uh we talked about it a little last week with the title card but i i i wanted to reiterate it that seeing this in context and like comparing it i really do like the title card over a more active scene or shot as they come up over this hill of rocks yeah i think it's uh it's a good way to remind your audience who the main character is or the main characters are yeah. Like, with Fellowship, it's over Frodo reading. Right. Instead of, like, in Bilbo's study. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the extended edition title cards are over, like, static imagery. Yeah. It's an interesting, like, sort of choice. Mm-hmm. Because, you're right, the Fellowship one is, this is our main character, here's the title of the movie. Right. And Two Towers is, here are the two characters whose narrative really drives... The, what happens the story in this forward movie. yeah and i because we haven't looked i can't remember where the return of the king title card is where the different the difference between the it'll two. be a surprise yeah it'll be a nice surprise <laughs> i hope it's nice it's like over a dead body but <laughs> right i mean you know it could be it could have been i'm sure Maybe. lots of people die in this movie yeah yeah needlessly <laughs> needlessly hashtag how dear lives um. <laughs> right <laughs> needless death of haldir <sighs> He's so not what, even... what can men do against so like against <laughs> such reckless hate so much death well yeah it's war right war is hell thaden war is hell freaking elves anyway so this is also shot on that same volcano mm-hmm. from yesterday it looks volcanic yeah mount ruapehu and all the close-up shots are actually shot in pickups almost two years after they filmed the wide shots crazy and you can kind of tell that they're studio shots the close-ups when you're really paying attention because the the background doesn't look quite as open but it's, it is kind of amazing to me how well it all flows. Yeah, I didn't notice anything. Given that it's years apart. I didn't notice anything. But then again, I wasn't looking for it. Yeah. So. Being aware of it, their posturing is slightly different in the close-ups than when it comes back out. Mm. Which, you know, makes sense for them having to film in a studio. Setting up foam rocks. 
trying to make it look as good as they can. Apparently, they had a lot of real trouble finding uh, moss that looked like the moss on Mount Ruapehu because pretty much the only places that moss grows in New Zealand are on protected land. Mm. So they had a lot of trouble tracking down alpine moss. Right. Trying to find matches for it. Yeah. Makes sense. The Greens department was on that for a while. I like the cadence of Sam's lines, like in general, but I think this minute really highlights that where he's talking about where he says like Mordor and it's the one place that we don't want to see up close and it's the one place that we that we're trying to get to that we're trying to get to and we can't get to it. Um, That was a horrible, horrible slaughtering of the line. Uh, But I like the way that he says it. Yes. Mordor. One place in Middle Earth we don't want to see up close, and the one place we're trying to get to. But it's and we can't. Yeah. Let's face it, Mr. No, Frodo. No, it's, we're lost. It's not quite that, but I should have written it down um, verbatim. But I like the way that he says it because there's like a weird lilting cadence to it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just the line itself lends that to it or if it's just his delivery of the line but i think that in other places too his delivery of certain lines and maybe it's just the way that they write sam but there's like yeah there's like a musicality to it it's like a strange i don't know it's not it's not strange but it's just kind of it's different it's got a different sort of cadence yeah I would say that a lot of Merry and Pippin's lines have a similar sort of musical cadence to them. Not quite like Sam, though. I don't really know how to explain it well. Uh, But I think that Sam's lines stand out because of of the delivery and the way that he says them. I mean, Sam kind of has to stand out. Because while we know, like, Sam's station in life, of the Hobbits, I feel like Sam is the hardest one to, like, pin down and like push a character arc through what do you mean because sam doesn't change much so you have to like you have to make who sam is really really clear i don't think i mean i wouldn't say that sam doesn't change much that's a really difficult double negative to kind of articulate i think sam changes like we were talking last last movie about the hero's journey in context of sam more so than frodo and the hero's journey is all about change. Yeah. I I would say that Sam's change isn't as drastic as the other three hobbits. Like physically? Or mentally. Because I think the core of Sam's being never really changes. It's learning to express that loyal core that he learns. It, it's That's what he gets out of this journey. Is more actively expressing that core of himself. Because he's, from the very beginning, Sam is loyal and steadfast and brave. It's just kind of learning to embrace those qualities about himself is really what he gets out of the journey. Especially, you know, in Sam's darkest hour when he thinks Frodo is dead. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because, like, Merry and Pippin and Frodo don't really seem to start with some of the qualities they end with. They learn those things through the trauma they experienced, through the journey they went on. Sam gets underlined. That makes sense. I guess I Sam's journey is being constantly challenged and constantly reevaluating what is important to him and uh, pushing Sam out of his comfort zone. 
Yeah. Because we talked a lot in fellowship about him crossing over that literal threshold. Yeah. In the field. And I think that that is what Sam's journey is. Like, Sam's journey is learning who he is under duress, I guess. Like, under under all of this pressure and all of this all of these traumatic experiences that they go through sam is about reaffirming who he is yeah and the other hobbits are about um discovering who they are yeah that's that's a good way okay, to put it yeah so I like got you. sam like sam sam like knows who he is but he's doubtful about that which is why he can't talk to rosie he doesn't have a lot of confidence yeah well even at the end of this movie when they're um when Sam is doing the hypothetical, like, oh, you know, tell tell me the tale of Frodo the Hobbit. You know, he was the, the bravest of all the hobbits. This. Yeah. And um, Frodo says, like, well, what about Samwise right. the Brave? You've forgotten one of the chief characters. Yeah. And Sam's like, oh, well, you know, I was I was being serious. Like, there's no need to joke about it. Like he he his confidence hasn't hasn't shown up right. yet. It's not till. He kills Shelob that he really feels confidence in it, confident in his person. Spoilers. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it happens in the this book. So. Yeah, it happens in this book. <laughs> it's it's like it's as much the climax of this book as Helm's Deep is. Mm. Yeah, we were watching one of the featurettes on the extended DVD, and it was talking about uh, Tolkien's writing process and his style. And about I, how he did many things a professional writer would not have. Right. And I had forgot. Maybe that's why it takes me so long to read through these. Mm. Because, I mean, at the the outset, I it took me so long to read through them because I was like 13. And I had, I had read quite a bit, but not, not anything this, like, dry before outside of, like, you know, school. Right. Um, but I think now that I, because I like went to school for writing, and maybe not like fiction, but like at least I could like my I majored in in reading good, right? Uh, as I like to say, so like there is a certain thing that you come to expect from the structure of a narrative. And the way Tolkien does it is he's just doing his own thing. Like he he's an academic. He knows he knows his stuff. But I think his structure is is different than like the modern novel. Yeah. And because you learn about like what makes a novel a novel, at least in the classes that I was taking. And in Two Towers, it's really interesting because instead of interspersing the narrative like we have in the movies, it's literally just, here's the chunk about Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli, and then here's the chunk about Frodo and Sam. Yeah. And... And it's not even... It's even more split up than that, because it's like, here's the chunk about Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, and Merry and Pippin, and their narratives are kind of related, but in different places. Right, right. Their narratives meet at the end. Yeah. Whereas Frodo With, like, Gandalf, I guess, but... Gandalf is the bridge between those two narratives. Right. And then you have Frodo and Sam. Yeah. Off on their own. Mm -hmm. Their own hobbity adventure. Yeah. And that influence kind of surfaces in fiction after this, where there's not, I don't, I'm not sure how many like split narrative works there are before Lord of the Rings, but there's certainly more after it. Uh, Salem's Lot has a split narrative. But not like, but not quite like 
he does it. Like, you can have multiple storylines, but they're always, like, interspersed throughout. Not like, here's the big chunk about right. Helm's Deep, and then you have to go back in time and rewind, yeah. and here's the big chunk about the people, Dead Marshes. People polished it more into something more like, like standard novel structure. Right. But I think the split narrative thing definitely had some influence past Tolkien. I mean, the the most popular fantasy series now is split narratives. Do you, by split merit narrative, do you just mean multiple storylines? I'm a totally different perspective of storylines. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, instead of the one protagonist that you're following throughout, there's, like, many characters doing different things. Right. Like, Game of Thrones is, every chapter is a different perspective. And, like, there are storylines for each character. Well, he didn't group them all to one chain the way the Tolkien did. Um, I would argue that that has been a thing since, like, stories were a thing. Because if I remember correctly, uh, Frankenstein comes to mind. Like, you're following Victor Frankenstein, but there's also chapters narrated by the monster. Right. And the monster is off doing his own monster thing, learning how to be a human. And Victor Frankenstein is, like, dealing with, like, oh, I'm a god. You know, these god complex stuff. Um, I have created life. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of other books. I don't know as much about literary history. I just, I have this feeling like it probably caused more split narrative stories after it. I think definitely in fantasy. I know, like, because there were, there were, like, fantasies, kind of, but they were, like, capital R romances, like, right. like Ivanhoe, like, um, uh, I would... I would say Treasure Island, um, even though I hate Treasure Island, the book. Right. Um, there's a, and there's a fine line between capital R romance and like an epic. Um. Yes, I mean, like it. The f- Ivanhoe kind of toes that line I a little bit. I think the the line is historical context. Yeah. Like Ivanhoe was written in the 1800s, so it's a romance in that it was written in the Romantic time period, and they were all about romanticizing the past. Right. And it's a callback to, like, right. epics like yeah. Beowulf. But, like, an epic is, like, Beowulf is an epic because yeah. it was written as, like, an epic poem. Yeah. Even, like, um, if you want to talk about, quote-unquote, epic poetry, uh, Paradise Lost. Yeah. Because, um, like, the first half of it follows uh, Satan, and then the other half of it follows yeah. Adam and Eve. Right. So that's, like, a split narrative thing. So I think it's just the way that it's interesting the way that he chooses to go about do presenting that. Yeah. I uh I can't think of any other work that does the split narrative in quite the same way that Tolkien did. Right. And that's that's part of my I think that's part of my issue is because he was like a novice writer uh of fiction, not like an academic writer. But Right, because he he agonized over word choices. Yeah. Yeah. He was all about that syntax, not about that structure. Right. Because <laughs> he's focusing on it from a linguistic level, like each word means something significant. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to look at the trees, not the forest. Right. Him and James Joyce probably would have gotten along. <sighs> Joyce. Uh... <laughs> oh. Yeah. Speaking of making sure every word means something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think Tolkien sees the trees not the forest. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's interesting going back and like looking at his prose now um in comparison to like 
you know, the standard, well, I mean, they're, but you know what I mean when I say standard fantasy novel? Yeah, like the the trade paperback size. Yeah, like. Diamond Dozen, you see him everywhere. Like, Boy Hero is has a tragic backstory. Like Aragon. He, he inherits some mystical, magical, arca- like, artifact, and he has to go on a quest. And Yeah. Yeah. Standard it's, fantasy. Yeah. Uh, which, a Stranger in a Strange Land. Right. Is, like, standard fantasy trope. Mm-hmm. Though that's, you know, science fiction. That's also, like, the name of science fiction, but, like, Stranger in a Strange Land is a very much, like, a trope. Like, okay. someone out of place becomes the hero, saves the day. Yeah. The whole, like, man out of time sort of deal. Like the boy king. Yeah. Kind of thing. Uh, what is it? Uh, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. <laughs> that sort yeah. of deal. Yeah. See, that that is a romance. I also love that story. Because that's Mark Twain, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is like an American romance. Yeah. Literally. Like, <laughs> there's a there's a really good uh, older movie adaptation of that. I can't remember who stars in it on top of my head, but mm. it's definitely worth a watch. It's pretty funny. We are like, we are way out here well, in literature. Not, I mean, we're talking about a movie adaptation of a, a keystone of modern literature. Yeah. So don't shame me for my English major talk. <laughs> I'm not. I, 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 find, I find all of that fascinating. It's also because I don't really have a whole lot of notes for this minute. So I'm trying to like. Uh, there's There's not a lot to talk about here other than like. The close-up shots are pickups from, like, two years apart. And the wide shot where they're looking at Mordor, they had to paint out, like, some couple hundred ski and hiking huts. <laughs> and their base camp around near this mountain was at a, a ski resort. There you go. Nice. Hot chocolate. Roaring fire. So they would, like, watch the Volcanoes. dailies. They'd, like, watch Mordor. the dailies in a cabin. That's Having so their charming, hot chocolate. Right? <laughs> having a good time. Oh, okay. Um... Since this comes at the end of the minute, um, I appreciate them reintroducing the main antagonist of the series in Minute 7. Yeah. Uh, It's so extra. Like, every time the Eye of Sauron shows up, I... It's very... It's so silly. Like, they play it completely straight, I feel, but in that way, it's it's way more silly to me. The one time I feel like they absolutely don't play it straight, I feel like it really was just Peter Jackson being like, hey, isn't this funny? I is, see yeah, you. Yeah. Is I see you. Like, <laughs> I, that's just Peter Jackson being like, this is a great joke. Right? Aren't he's I like, funny? He's like jabbing someone with the elbow, like, hey, hey. And they're just I, like. I get it. I right? see you. It's a big eye. like, oh, Peter. Like, <laughs> Fran and Philip are like, do we have to keep it? Because he let them do like all the really character stuff right. once they started filming the movie because right. he had no time. Right. Because he's directing. Right. And he's watching all the dailies from all the other units that he can't be directing right. because he's only one person and he can't make clones of himself. Yeah. And it, it, it sounds to me like pretty much every rewrite went across his face first. His face. Like. <laughs> his wife just shoves a manuscript at his like, face. Hey, like, take a look yeah. at this. <laughs> I rewrote three lines in this scene. What do you think? I feel like that's Smacking a lot of what went on. Is like, do you think this works? Yeah. Because, like, he's also the director. Right. It's just in, it's just interesting to me. Like, I want to know, like, the percentage breakdown right. of how much was Fran and Philippa and how much was Peter. Because I know that Peter gets um, the... Because he's the director. Like, it, it's already filtered through his creative process. Right. So I'm interested to see how much of it, especially with the final product... 
like draft to draft, like how much of it was the women. I would go out on a limb and think that for the most part, uh, all the comedy is probably Peter or a large portion of it. Why? Just because most of it seems like the silly slapstick stuff that he's always written. Well, so I would just kind of guess that most of the comedy is Peter. What? Women can't be funny. No, absolutely. They can (laughs) But I like, couldn't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> you know, but like Peter Jackson has just kind of always written comedy. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's. That's, I don't know. It just seems to me like that's probably what he's more experienced at doing. I think, I don't know if he's always, always written comedy. Like. I don't, we watched that first feature movie. I, I guess that that was funny in a weird, like middle school boy kind of funny with all the blood and guts and stuff. But, like, there are definite influences, but I don't know necessarily that it's all jokey stuff. That's fair. I just, I get a sense that a lot of the slapstick is probably Peter's idea. Because that, um, we'll talk about that Gollum scene uh, when when he's, um, when Smeagol and Gollum are arguing. Yeah. Like, that was all Fran. And yeah. I would argue that that scene has moments of, of humor in it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, um, I mean, specifically, like, a lot of the slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that Peter probably is responsible for most of that. What, like, the Marion Pippin stuff? Yeah. Like, a lot of that sort of stuff. The slapstick or, like, like oh, man, some guy should trip right here. Or the ICU thing, I would bet, is Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that all the so- pretty much all the soft character moments are Fran and Philippa, just from the way they talk about them on the commentaries. Makes sense. We know that pretty much all of Aragorn and Arwen is them. Well, yeah. And the Gollum conversation. It seems like a lot of the narrative heavy lifting is probably Philippa and Fran. It's kind of how it feels to me, based yeah. on the way they talk in the commentaries. Like, Peter has a framework and kind of an overall narrative plan. Mm-hmm. And... He handles probably mostly like the battle sequences and that sort of stuff, kind of blocking and planning them out in the script. Right, but that's that's different than like blocking a scene is like a director's job. Like it's not. It depends on how you write your action scenes too, because like it could just be like the battle ensues. Right, because in in the script, all it says about they the Moria thing, the they, they head down the stairs. Yeah, like they are chased. So they like, run down even the stairs. If, even if he's like quote unquote responsible for all the action sequences like that comes through on the screen and not the page so much right especially if that the the stair scene moria is indicative of the other action sequences throughout like he might have because he was storyboarding at the same time they were writing too so i'm sure that but storyboarding is also a directive a a directorial process and not like yeah what i mean i mean yeah, it's not it's not directly like script writing, but it is like writing visually. Especially because if he is working on the script himself, he knows what he wants to see. Like he has it in his brain. That's what the storyboarding thing right. is. And but then all he puts on the page is like the necessary action right, itself. Right. Like the the battle ensues. Right. Like or um He's just like, I know what this is gonna be already. They fight a cave troll. Right. I got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They walk down the stairs. Like and then he does all the, the facial motions for the, the mm-hmm. guys on set. He's right. just like, I'm going to be the cave troll today. Right. That's all, that's all like actual... Hands-on director stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure that he wrote a significant portion of the script. Yeah. 
I mean, he I'm just, was. I'm just like I'm not. I'm not knocking it because he obviously earned the credit because that's yeah. the way that the that that works. But like, yeah. I'm curious as to the ratios of it. Right. How much of the script is who? What I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to find out. I mean, ultimately, it's not like important with a big eye. Right. Ultimately. It's not important. I'm just curious about it. Yeah. I I am kind of curious too. I mean, we only know like something specifically. Yeah. About like who wrote what. The overall process is probably very largely the three of them sitting in a room. Just oh, yeah. Talking no, absolutely. for hours and hours and hours and hours. Just spitballing ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And then not sleeping and spitballing ideas between days of takes. Right. Because, I mean, like, if it was just his framework and then they wrote the script around it, it would be story by Peter Jackson. But it's not. It's, like, written by yeah. these three. So. You can't even. Do they use story by credits when they do adaptations? Like, they don't use story by credits for people other than the per- the work it's adapted from, do they? Um, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of the, like, how crediting works. That is, that is a... Because I know they it's based on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien right. in the credits. Yeah. But that, like, crediting is an area that I have absolutely no clue. Yeah. How they decide what they do. Witchcraft. Like, how they decide who gets top billing and all of that, like... I think it's all, um... Guild stuff, maybe. Yeah, I'm like sure. Screen actors. Yeah, I'm sure it's all writers. Guild SAG stuff. rules. Yeah, it's like the person with the most because people with more experience generally wind up near the top of billing, but not always. Right. So I'm not sure. I do find that I have Sauron scene in this minute really funny though. This is very jarring. It's just it kind of takes you out of the quiet moment with Sam. And then Frodo has like a life alert moment, like oh help, like I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, because like, it, it's doing two things at once. It's like. He clutches his chest. It's like, oh, the ring's still here. Oh, there's the big flaming eye that we're all afraid of. I mean, he you see the ring next time, so I guess I'll save it for next time. But I don't really have anything else for this minute. Not Frodo even. Frodo has straps on his on top of his He, his he cloak, is wearing a small backpack. But I don't know what I don't like you don't see it. You see like Sam's little cauldron and his like pots and pans and yeah. stuff. Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan say in the commentary that they feel so bad for Sean Astin because the, him and those two and Frodo are just carrying like empty backpacks mm-hmm. and Sam's backpack is full of crap. Yeah. Like Sean Astin is carrying a backpack full of stuff and Frodo and Marion Pippin are not. They're yeah. just, they just have backpacks. Right. <laughs> with like some stuffing in them to make them look like there's something inside. Right. Whereas he's got the pots and the pans and then he pulls out lembas bread mm-hmm. and rope and all this other stuff. Right. That's funny. Real Elvish Rope. Real Elvish Rope. So if you're interested in some other dueling genre podcasts, you can check out Geek by Night uh, and Immunities, which are both audio dramas. Mm-hmm. One is Geek by Night is superheroes and Immunities is a horror suspense story. With aliens. With like aliens and the like. Yeah. Uh, and you can also check out Countdown to Infinity where they're reviewing each movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe leading up to Infinity War's release. They're they're releasing an episode a week, and each week they're doing all the MCU movies. So they started with Iron Man, The Hulk, Iron Man 2. I guessed it on the Thor one. I'm not sure when that's coming out. Um, in a couple weeks, I think. If yeah, if they if they time it correctly, it they'll finish the week before uh, Infinity War comes out. So that's pretty rad. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. They're going to squeeze in a Black Panther review? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I hope they do a Black Panther review. Gosh. That'd be unfortunate if they just 
lose track of time. Oh no. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Bye.